0: The chosen one right there. Well, I've just got a few things to say, but first of all, Slappy New Year! Oh, he's got the, he's got the, fill out. Last week on Nitro, I proved to the entire world that at any given time,
1: I could become the WCW champion.
0: That's why this company's in the damn shape it's in because of bullshit like this. this, this.
1: Welcome to the inaugural episode of Keep It 2000, a review podcast dedicated to the year of WCW Nitro that was 2000. Really more of a social experiment to see how this will affect our brains. And your two scientists going through this are me, Brian Maxwell Mann, and I'm being joined by Nate Milton. Nate, uh, as we take our maiden voyage, how are you feeling about this?
0: Uh, so far, so good, brother man. Uh, happy New Year. Everything old is new again. And, and uh, you know, we are celebrating uh, the new year in 2000, as it were. And, and this is very much like uh, a, a science project or or you could even say this is almost like Mystery Science Theater, you know, where they sent uh, that poor soul up in the spaceship with the robots and, and, and had to get his brain and, and see how long he could stay sane. And so that's gonna be the challenge here. We're gonna take a look at WCW and uh, you know, see uh see how we hold up once this thing is all said and done.
1: Now I feel like we just need to give the listeners a little bit of context. What was your relationship with WCW at this time? Because for me, I was a huge Nitro fan. I was still watching Nitro up to this point. And I'm a little I'm a little younger than you and I know that I was like still kind of at that age where I was figuring out that I could have opinions about things. And I was still relatively new to pro wrestling. I'd only been watching it for a couple years. So this was really my wake-up when I started to realize, hey, some of this is shitty. But at the beginning of WCW, it was still at a point where I was giving them the benefit of the doubt. If something didn't make sense, I assumed that, oh, they're they're grown adults on television. They must know what they're doing. And I assumed that either uh, they're referencing a storyline from before my time or something like that. I was also someone that had only ever watched WCW at this point. How were you viewing the product in the year 2000?
0: I was absolutely still viewing the product. You know, I've I was a nitro diehard. You know, I watched... Damn near every episode from the Mall of America all the way up until the bitter end when we had the split screen with uh, Vince and Shane. So, you know, this was not uh, something that was going to deter me. And anybody that knows about my TNA fandom knows, you know, I have a high threshold for pain. So I think in 2000, I was uh, 22, 23. Uh, So I was still uh, a young man at that time and, and probably uh, indulged in, 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 some alcoholic beverages at that time. And so, uh, night show didn't seem that bad. So it, this is going to be interesting for me because as a NWA slash WCW diehard and loyalist, uh, I wonder, are my memories going to uh, hold up to the shows that we actually watch? Because I still hold a uh, night in high regard. So we'll see how that holds up through the course of this program.
1: And I, myself, was still six years away from consuming an alcoholic beverage, pleasurably. I think I'd had some sips of beer here and there, and it was disgusting. And it's still disgusting. Beer's disgusting. I don't know why people drink it. But that being said, let's delve into this time period. People don't really hold WCW 2000 in very high regards. And I should say, we're just reviewing nitros. We're not going to watch Thunders, not watch any of the pay-per-views, just these nitros. And Nate, looking, using the scientific method... What is your hypothesis? What do you think we're, we're going to learn? Because I sometimes wonder if... I mean, I love shitting on WCW 2000. I love hearing other people talk that way. But I sometimes wonder, does WCW 2000 get maybe a bum rap? Do sometimes people maybe view it out of context? And that's why it seems so much crazier. Uh, what is your hypothesis? What do you think we're going to learn?
0: Well, there's a couple things, Brian. I think, you know, first of all... Quality is subjective, and I think there's there's ranges along the continuum, along the spectrum uh, of what one person might say is just okay and what one person might think is abysmal. Uh, so I think we're going to see uh, things that might not be as good as the heyday of WCW a few years before this, uh, but in terms of how bad it actually is, I think that's going to be interesting to see what we come up with as, as this journey goes along. But the other thing I think is with WCW, when you have something that reaches so high a point as it did in uh you know, 97, 98 and for it to be diminished from that, I think it, it makes people angry. People feel disappointed. They feel let down. They feel betrayed. They feel like you sold them a bill of goods. So I think, that part of the fans' displeasure with WCW around this time period might not only be what we see on TV, but just the fact that hey, you know, this isn't what we thought it was going to be, and the fact that the war with the uh, WWE, the WWF at the time, is clearly have has clearly been decided, and it was something that captivated people for so long, and now it, it's 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 nothing. Uh, so I, I think that it's going to be really interesting to see at what point maybe it's this episode <laughs> at, at, at what point do you and I kind of go along with the consensus that uh w c w in the year two thousand was uh was was not very good to to put it kindly
1: I think starting out in this, we're both uh optimistic and uh who knows will that last ten episodes five episodes an hour We'll find out here, Nate. But one thing we're going to find out is we're going to do a little flashback segment here on every single show. We're going to figure out what was going on in the world when this episode debuted. Now, in terms of the world of news, this was the last day that the Peanuts ran as a daily comic book strip across the country. It was also the beginning of President Clinton's peace talks between Syria and Israel. I wonder how that's going to turn out. And uh, in terms of pop culture, Nate, the number one song in America was Smooth.
0: Oh, I I think this might actually be my favorite part of this new show, Brian, because uh, for those that don't know, maybe in addition to wrestling or sports, the thing that I might be most passionate about, and and honestly, I might be more passionate about this than wrestling or sports, and that that is music. And so when you talk about Smooth and you got Santana, you got Rob Thomas from Matchbox 20, uh, Supernatural in and of itself was a pretty good album man it, it was a gimmick of course you know you put santana with all these current stars uh but i i dug it man this was right in my wheelhouse uh and so smooth is it the beatles no but i think it it for a pop song from the 2000s i, I think it holds up
1: supernatural i'd probably say we have to say that's the most successful of those kinds of albums right because i mean like uh uh Ray Charles did his, but this was kind of like the last sort of like artist past their heyday does a collection with gimmicky collection with a lot of new singers, and this was also the tail end of uh, radio dominance. Uh, the internet started to pick up uh, probably within the next year or so. People are going to start being aware of Napster, but this was the time period where simply getting a song played on on the radio could make it a hit uh i don't think an album like supernatural or a song like smooth could really uh capture the zeitgeist like it did uh today
0: no because i think part of it is i think folks might see it as corny but i th- also think the way that we consume our music is different and, and people are so fragmented now uh where you know you can just if, if all you want to hear is j cole or if all you want to hear is see Oak Ridge Boys, you can set up a Playlist on Spotify or Pandora. I don't know why you're listening to J. Cole and the Oak Ridge Boys, but more power to you. But, uh, you know, it, it's not like it was back in the day. Like, terrestrial radio is has such less power and influence than it, than it used to. Uh, so, I, yeah, I think this was a really fun record where you had a, a lot of different team-ups. You know, you had uh, Dave Matthews was on here with, with Santana, so that obviously brought me into the tent. Uh, you had uh, Wyclef uh before we knew uh what a scumbag he was uh i said it i'm not afraid of him Uh, i mean great musician but uh not not a good human being white john
1: he's really great at posing with a motorcycle yes posing with a motorcycle
0: (laughs) wearing bikini (laughs) drawers uh but i think lauren hill was on there uh yeah this is a really good record man And, and i i think Part of the the hook to it, part of the gimmick was that Santana was kind of so far removed from his heyday in the seventies uh, and early eighties that the kids at that time, and, and I was one of them, you know, in, in in college, thought that was just really cool. And I think the really cool thing about it was, you know, you had Carlos Santana, who was somebody whose heyday was so far in the rearview mirror. You know, you're talking about the seventies and and maybe into the early eighties, so. For a lot of the college-age kids at that time, which I was uh, a part of that camp, it felt very fresh, and it felt cool, and it was was a way to be hipster and mainstream at the same time, if, if that's possible, Brian.
1: We've gotten you up to date. You know how things were going in pop culture in the year 2000. Let's see what was going on with Nitro as we were just entering a new year. Now, Nate, do you think we should give people kind of a refresher of where the storylines were at this point, or if we just jump right in and hope they figure things
0: out like we had to? <laughs> oh, man. I think maybe we can catch them up a little, but I do not want to be cruel. I do uh, want to make one note, though, Brian. What? Because I think, you know, we, we might find ourselves struggling to find positives as, as we go on with this show. And I got to say, maybe it's just me, but I really like this logo and I really like this intro.
1: Oh, the uh, the <laughs> here's the thing. I was it literally took me because it was like the weird, almost like a winged logo type thing. It it had to take me about two or three months before I realized it was supposed to say WCW. <laughs> But the, kind of the overarching things to know, just a real quick refresher, because I'm sure most people kind of know this if they're listening to this show, but you had Vince Russo and Ed Ferrara had recently come in, uh, the previous October and were running the, uh, the creative and had made themselves, uh, kind of the stars in a weird way. You never saw them, but they were kind of these New York writers that were coming to ruin the show and they were sort of being blamed for, uh, it was weird. It's like, uh. They were both making it more of a WWE-type product, but then the babyfaces on the show were all telling you that the new direction of the product was bad, so I don't know really why you're supposed to be watching the show. Um, But the big storyline at this time period was that uh, just a couple weeks earlier, the NWO had reformed, the NWO 2000 being led by Bret Hart with Kevin Nash, Scott Hall, and Jeff Jarrett. Do you think we got everyone up to speed?
0: I think so. I think you hit the key points, you know. Uh, Those are the broad strokes you need to know. Yeah, we, we, we've we introduced the people to the greatness that uh, is the uh, NWO silver and black. <laughs> now let's jump in. For me to be healthy after wrestling, he told me to retire.
1: Previously on Nitro, a teary-eyed Scott Steiner announces his retirement from wrestling following a back injury a few months earlier. The future Shoney's manager is interrupted by world champ Bret Hart, leader of NWO
0: 2000.
1: Outside the arena, the other members of NWO 2000, Jeff Jarrett, Kevin Nash, are spray painting Sid Vicious's car. Nice little touch up job. Down in Arkansas, this is how they do their car. Later in the night, Sid Vicious is set to give Jeff Jarrett what would have been probably a horrendous powerbomb, but instead, Scott Steiner swerves us all. What the hell's going on
0: around here? Hey, look at this! Scam! Scam! It's been the
1: biggest column of all! As Scott attacks the down Vicious, revealing that he is still NWO for life, Bret Hart is shown looking at a confused fan and shrugging his shoulders over this booking. Now, not content to end on a fake retirement swerve, the NWO then trapped Sid in his graffitied car from earlier and ran it over with the custom NWO monster truck. is killing that damn car. The monster truck! He's killing the car. Oh my god. A little bit of backstory. Who do you think was driving that monster truck?
0: Oh, so, uh... You
1: know, clearly, WCW, they spent some money getting this thing made, first of all, bringing it down, like, bringing it to the arena, renting out a film crew and everything. So, clearly, you're gonna have, like, an experienced monster truck driver.
0: was was it the same guy that uh, that was driving the Hulkamania monster truck from a few years earlier?
1: Um, That monster truck was being driven by Bret Hart. (laughs) And he later would write in his weekly piece on the Calgary Sun how pissed off and angry he was that they kept having him do, like, vehicular stunts. Because earlier in the year, they also did one where, like, he, like, speed away on, like, icy roads and almost, like, went head on into a production truck. So Bret Hart was not happy about having to do this. So getting caught up, you put on this episode, Nate. We're stepping in. We've committed ourselves to doing a year of this. How did you feel with this this refresher? Did it bring you back? Did it bring back the old memories of how this used to be?
0: Well, see, here's where I started to get my first inkling of, you know, the the deconstruction of my nostalgia. Because <laughs>
1: oh, so it's already happening. You're already becoming a- already
0: in the first five <laughs> minutes. Because I remember really liking the NWO 2000. And I think what I think what looking back now uh, after these first five minutes of the show, I think what I liked about it was the idea and the concept that this is kind of an elite black ops slimline stream down version or streamlined slim down version of the NWO and not the hulking Goliath that it grew to be in the uh, later years of the black and white and, and the wolf pack and all that stuff. So I like that. It was a streamed down version with these heavy hitters, but looking at it now, these guys really don't fit together. And I'm, I can, could, I can could tell that just in the first five minutes,
1: Brett Hart does not work in the group. And then on top, especially as the leader of the group. And then Jeff Jarrett doesn't seem yeah, to make Jeff sense. Jarrett just
0: stands out just for not for the good reasons. Because they're all, I feel like all
1: of them would be really great leaders of their own factions, but together, like, it just, it doesn't mix. It just, they're, they're all these different, cause you got, like, your southern wrestling over here with, uh, with, with Jeff, you got your Canadian technician with Brett, you got your, like, steroid hulkster over here with, with Scott, and you got, like, your lackadaisical, you know, call, like, wake me up when the show's over, Kevin Nash. All of which are doing completely different things that do not gel together at all. Right. You could not really see these dudes, like, having to hang out. Like, maybe they carpool, but that's about it.
0: Yeah, you know, I think that's what that's what hooked me when I was younger. And now I see the error of my ways, the folly of my youth. Because back then, like, with those four, it felt like an all-star team. It felt like, hey, these are four big names, and it, it's 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 cool. And then I'm like, wait a minute. You know, as we see in real sports, you know, sometimes just having the biggest names or signing the biggest contracts does not guarantee victory. And, and I think we're we're already on that path here with the uh, NWO Raiders edition.
1: If I'm not mistaken, how long had the NWO even been gone before they reformed? Couldn't have been more than, it had to be less than six months, right? Yes,
0: At most, you're talking six months.
1: At most six months. Okay. So, uh... It's now time for this week.
0: You are looking live at the Greenville Spartanburg Airport as the Learjet is landed.
1: The private WCW jet arrives in Greenville, South Carolina Airport as Tony Schiavone informs us that a new WCW commissioner will be named tonight to keep the NWO in check.
0: It's a brand new year. It's a brand new century. Welcome to WCW.
1: 2000 live in the arena pyro shoots off as Tony welcomes us to a new year and a new century his first factual blunder of the evening 2000 was not the first year of the century it was the last year of a century that's how centuries work they start with the one not the zero Tony informs us that tonight we'll see the conclusion of the lethal lottery tag title tournament uh the titles were vacant because of Scott Hall's injury and as a result they got a wild card tournament comprised of several misfit tag teams. The brackets serve as an instant advertisement for Monday Night Raw, as viewers are warned of such matchups as Buzzkill and Mike Rotunda versus the Harris Brothers. And that lame duck uh, match is exactly what starts it, as Buzzkill makes the first entrance of the evening. Now, who and what was Buzzkill? Well, it was this stoner gimmick that was played by the late Brad Armstrong, whose only purpose was to be a direct ripoff of his brother, Brian's Road dog character. It's man- It's that B-U-Double-Z! And his partner was Mike Rotunda, accompanied by... I wrote Variety Club, and that's not the name of this group.
0: Oh, (laughs) man. That's a great faction. Like, you got a song and dance, man. You got a (laughs) stand-up comic. You got somebody doing improv. It's it's the Variety Club!
1: Club. (laughs) (laughs) No, instead, uh, he was from the Varsity Club. His teammate was Kevin Sullivan, and they were accompanied by Leia Meow. Kevin Sullivan sets up a trampoline at ringside, and Leia begins jumping on it, causing veteran broadcaster, the Professor Mike Tenay to squeal, Is there anything better than Leia Meow on a trampoline? The crowd erupts, of course, given that these are the heels. Uh, Mike Rotunda though, gets his heat back instantly in veteran fashion by getting on the mic and saying, How y'all doing, losers? Clearly, Bray Wyatt got his speaking abilities from his mother's side. Now, this brings out their opponents, TNA stockholders, the Harris Brothers. We get a recap of how both teams advanced. Uh, Buzzkill and Mike Rotunda won after interference from Hacksaw Jim Duggan in their match. And the Harris Brothers won after their opponents fought each other and got counted out. These two unstoppable juggernauts, who will advance in this tournament? So Kevin Sullivan goes and joins the commentary team, which tonight is being composed of Tony Schiavone, Mike Tanay, and Bobby Heenan and the four begin trading backstage gossip about Rick Steiner only occasionally acknowledging the match long enough to applaud Leia Miao's bouncing. You can't blame the announcers as the crowd, as well as ignoring the match. Just then, Miss Hancock comes out with standards and practices, a pair of network stooges to remove Leia from ringside. Sullivan then quickly leaves the broadcast booth and Rotunda abandons the match as well as the Varsity Club beats up standards and practices. Left alone in the ring, Buzzkill is quickly uh, pinned as being double teamed by the babyface Harris Brothers. Sullivan and Rotunda then sneak back in and attack the Harris Brothers from behind, but the alt-right Harris's send them packing. Now, Nate, this might have been the perfect match (laughs) to start this podcast. What can you say? (laughs) What can you really say? That that we were is explicitly told right away to not care about anything that was happening in the ring i think the maybe 45 seconds of this two minute match was actually spent showing the action in the ring i gotta judge this based on what it was trying to be and it wasn't trying to be a wrestling
0: match man there was there so much to unpack just with this match alone you got brad armstrong and, and this is probably gonna come up many times during the course of this podcast man but i i happen to think that brad armstrong might be one of the most underrated wrestlers of his time
1: he was one of like goldberg's best opponents that they would throw him out there with a lot and he he and goldberg always had some pretty good chemistry and he would sell for him he he knew how to work for him how to bump properly for the guy
0: yeah like i love me some brad armstrong like to me it it, it's like I, i don't know why this dude wasn't a bigger star but like he he was every time he was in there uh Except for like this, because by this point it was, you know, they didn't know what the hell to do with the guy. But like, even when he was doing uh, the was the fake Spider-Man gimmick, or Arachneman. Two hundred thirty-five pounds from Lake City, Arachneman. <laughs> oh man, yeah, and Arachneman was so stupid. It was a Spider-Man ripoff, but instead of red and blue, he was purple and gold because because that'll keep Marvel's lawyers away.
1: Well, it did not, and they they had to stop using it after a couple episodes of WCW Saturday Night.
0: But yeah, so you got Brad Armstrong again being criminally underused, but maybe even more egregious than that, Brian. Man, this is the year two thousand, and you got Mike Rotunda and Kevin Sullivan bringing back the Varsity Club. Why? Yeah,
1: that was the other thing. They they were brought back as the Varsity Club, uh, which I just had to confirm had not been a a, a gimmick for a decade.
0: Yeah. <laughs> And the varsity club, like back then, it was like I I I love the varsity club back in the day when it, when it was a uh, Sullivan and Doctor and Death and, and Mike Rotunda and I think Rick Steiner for a time period like that was a really cool little stable that, that does not didn't get a lot of shine. But to bring it back a decade later and pair them up with uh you know Leia Meow from ECW and and it, it again parts that don't work together and and I thought they they just kind of misutilized these these people that that could have been served to you know work, work in better capacities
1: we think in another recap of last week the monster truck mashup as tony informs us that sid survived with only a through a few compressed vertebrae because he laid down across the seat apparently that's it guys <laughs> if you got a monster truck character just lay down across the street seat you'll be absolutely fine and he will be able to face bret hart at this month's pay-per-view as long as he takes a couple weeks to rest his neck, which I don't think is a thing you can really do, but they stress that he will have he will survive this as long as he rests a few weeks. Keep that in mind, guys. Yes. The announcers then speculate as to who the new commissioner could be. Heenan suggests Luthes, and Tane goes with Bruno San Martino. We then cut back to the airport where a limo is now pulling away from the jet. It should be noted that this limo is receiving a police escort because in Greensville, South Carolina, wrestling angles are considered matters of public safety. Watching in their locker room is Scott Steiner, Kevin Nash, Jeff Jarrett, and a boom mic that keeps dropping down into the shot. Nash predicts the commissioner will either be Tom Zink or Orson Bean. Jeff wonders where Brett is. Then, as if on cue, Brett Hart is shown entering the arena, his NWO 2000 shirt tucked into his mom jeans. And you can tell, Nate, this is an NWO2000 shirt because the new in New World Order is underlined. Brett is in attack from behind by Sid Vicious and his compressed vertebrae as we go to break. Now, Nate, one thing I will say here. It's a positive now. I'm going to complain about it later. I like that we were cutting between multiple locations and that the pace was being kept up. They would do this too much. They would not let things breathe. But WWE does it a little too much on the other side where people will end the scene and just stare off into the distance or just stare at each other while we, like, slowly fade away or or, or cross dissolve. off. So I do like that this, like, this felt more like a TV show, which is a positive. We're looking for those silver linings.
0: Well, and I think, you know, when, when you talk about Vince Russo, like, the knock on him has never been that he's boring. The knock has been sometimes it, it's sensory overload and... What we're overloaded with makes zero sense. So I think, you know, from just keeping my attention standpoint, this show kept my attention. Uh, but, again, we we're going to talk about whether whether that attention was rewarded by what was put on my screen.
1: Oh, no, no, this definitely flew by. I will, I will agree with you. Back from break, we get a recap of the beatdown brought to us by Wendy's 99-cent value menu, which is a much better faction than the NWO 2000. Nash and Jarrett check on Brett, but the stubborn heart says he's fine. When paramedics come to check on the champion, the NWO attacks them because they're heels. Out on the road, the committer's motorcade is shown again. Backstage, Mean Gene stops DDP, who is now just arriving. I I guess talent saw the bracket for the tag tournament and said, fuck it, I'll show up late. Paige says he won't wrestle until he gets his hands on Buff Bagwell. Gene informs Paige that he will get his hands on Buff in a no DQ match, it's sold out, but he has to wait till the pay per view. DDP is understandably pissed that he had to show up for this episode of Nitro and blames the talent department for booking him a flight. Paige walks off to leave the arena, but is stopped by corporate stooge Kurt Henning, who tells Dallas that the powers that be want him in the ring tonight. Paige then decides to just go to the ring now. Was DDP a babyface or a heel? I'm not 100% sure, but I would guess he's a babyface. I thought so too, because he's being pushed around by the corporate stooge, and he does a babyface thing here now, but he's wanting a grudge max against Buff, who I believe is also a babyface. So we think uh, for our next round uh, matchup, and boy howdy, it is uh, PG-13 versus the NWO. Gimmick Challenge Juggalo Tag Team PG-13 come out as we receive a recap of how they advanced last week. They, they had a 10-minute match, which they run fair and square. I'm kidding. I'm kidding, uh, of course. They lost 2-1 to one against Rick Steiner. Rick Steiner actually beat these two guys himself, but he beat them so badly that the ref reversed the decision and gave PG-13 the victory.
0: Uh.
1: PG-13 then made a case for scripted promos, as JCI said,
0: Usually when we come out to these towns, we got something to talk about. But seeing we in this nothing happening town, we ain't got nothing to talk about. Oh, oh wait a minute, Brian, wait a minute. We, we can't just gloss over the, the lyrical brilliance that is uh, J.C. Ice.
1: Oh, okay. Sorry. I mean, that is more of your forte. Yeah,
0: I actually took notes because this <laughs> this was a pleasant. I, I don't, well, pleasant maybe too strong a word. Uh, I was going to say this is a pleasant surprise, but it was just a surprise.
1: I wouldn't call it a pleasant or a surprise because based on the fucking look of this guy, I he I delivered exactly what I was expecting.
0: Well, no, I mean the surprise that PG thirteen was on this show. i would completely forgotten about this run for them because this is a team that I want to say was pretty big in the USWA, but that would have been what, six, seven years prior to this? Maybe. Yeah, but you talk you talking about mid nineties when PG thirteen would have had their heyday. So I, I had no idea that PG thirteen was gonna show up on my TV screen when when I started this program. And so when when they showed up I had to pay attention. And Brian, you, you talk about lyrics. I mean it's the P to the G plus the one and the three that means JC Ice and I'm Wolfie D. We ain't playing no games, so you better beware. You don't like us, so what? We really don't care. Like that, he's got bars, Brian. That's, that's hot fire. <laughs> so
1: rather than their opponents, out comes DDP, who just lays both men out with diamond cutters. DDP leaves through the crowd as Scott Steiner and Kevin Nash come out to collect uh, the easy pen. And there you go. Uh, Steiner Nash, advance, and spray paint NWO as Jarrett and Hart are shown backstage headed to the ring. So, Nate, you came out pretty strongly as pro PG-13. I, I can't really come out as pro anything in this segment. Uh, I, g- I guess DDP was was the baby face here. Uh, really served no purpose. <laughs> this is, And this is DDP's only involvement in the show. Like, yeah, it made him look cool, but whatever. But why did the, the powers that be? With the powers that be just, like, needed him out in the ring for... Some I, it, it made no
0: sense. Yeah, that, that question was never answered. Why Why did we need DDP in, in this segment? What What did the powers to be want him out there for? But I will say, in in uh, brother Page's defense, like he was like one of the most over things on the show. Like that diamond cutter still got a pretty good reaction.
1: Back from break, the NWO makes their way to the ring, which I'm going to say several times during this episode. The announced team is more or less telling you the new commissioner will be Ric Flair, uh, but more on that later. They're hinting to it uh, uh, okay, a lot. Okay, okay, Brian, hold on. Time, act, out. Time yeah. out.
0: Time out. Flag on the play. What? Because I need to know, like, why? what, what happened here because... We'll, we'll when, get
1: into it. We'll get into we it. When we left
0: the last segment. Yeah. The NWO was in the ring. Yes. When we come back, the NWO comes out to the ring. Yes, why? Why did we do that?
1: Because I don't think Nash and Steiner were willing to uh, stand around in the ring uh, to kill a uh, a commercial break. <laughs> <laughs> so as the NWO makes their way out to the ring, the announced team is pretty much telling you that Ric Flair is going to be the new the new commissioner.
0: Well, I know I've heard. I'm sure
1: you heard this, Mike. I heard it was Ric Flair. I mean, I just looked over here and I saw a sign. Here in the crowd in Greenville, South Carolina, Tony, and I mean, think back. Ric Flair, Greenville, South Carolina, think back to your history, it makes sense. So, Bret Hart says that Sid has no respect and he'll beat him to a pulp at Sold Out. The crowd is half-heartedly chanting Goldberg as Hart hands the mic to U.S. champ Jeff Jarrett. Jeff wishes us a slappy new year and challenges Chris Benoit to a triple threat theater at Sold Out, meaning three matches in one night, a dungeon match, a bunkhouse brawl, and a caged heat match. Jarrett says that Benoit is in Japan tonight, so Sid is all by himself. So thankfully, Nate, you and I can delay the Chris Benoit topic for another week. Nash questions the need for a commissioner who will just make more rules for the NWO to break like always. Scott takes the mic and calls his performance last week Academy Award winning. Factually inaccurate. Uh, Forget the fact that his performance was on television and thus it was only eligible for an Emmy. That year's Best Supporting Actor Oscar went to Michael Caine for the Cider House Rules. Steiner says his fans aren't in the crowd because his fans are educated people on Wall Street in a suit and tie. And I can call another factual inaccuracy because I've been to a Scott Steiner indie show in New York and those are not his fans.
0: So all you rednecks, white trash, stand up and bow down to the greatest athletes in the world. Bow down to the NWO. And then you can kiss.
1: Nate, you mentioned it earlier, but these were four different guys giving four completely different types of promos, and they could not have... You might as well have just been cutting to different areas backstage, because these did not feel like these were four dudes that liked each other in the slightest.
0: Yeah, each guy had, had his own agenda, and they didn't really flow well together, and it it felt like a marriage of convenience, almost <laughs> like
1: and like Steiner's like running down inbred rednecks. It's like, do you realize Jeff Jarrett is in your stable?
0: <laughs> like, yeah, there was there was no cohesiveness uh, besides the fact that they were all uh, wearing those sweet silver and black T shirts.
1: Like Nash and Steiner are both like Detroit guys. They'd been in the Wolf pack like that. You can kind of it, it's a little bit more, but the four of them together just highlights. Just highlights how these guys, you know, they they, they they might be running, you know, silver and black, but that's about it.
0: Oh, see, I figured it out, Brian, now that we've, we've talked this out. I figured out why I really liked this group so much when I was younger. It's because uh, I was a subscriber to the WCW magazine.
1: Yeah. And they had a really so, great... By the way, so was I at the time.
0: They, well, they had this really great cover, which you might remember, Brian, and it had the four of them on there. And I think the headline was like, Back in Black. Yep. And it was, it was a really cool cover, and I think I just really liked that cover so much that it made me think that they were this elite group, which they they, they are proving not to be.
1: We then go outside the arena, and the limo has arrived. Carolina is flair country as David Flair. Now in his unhinged gimmick, enters with partner Crowbar and his girlfriend Daphne. His tournament uh, opponents tonight are Lash the Rue in Midnight. Now how did both teams advance? I shit you not here, Nate. Both David Flair and Lash LaRue were placed on their opponents by individuals interfering in their matches.
0: <laughs> hey, if it ain't broke, don't
1: fix it. Real tournament of champions we got going on here. Now, out of nowhere, Stevie Ray shows up on commentary. I have no idea where this guy came from. He did not enter, he was just suddenly at the announce table, and he calls Midnight a jacked-up hoochie. Bobby's asks why Stevie Ray hates midnight. Stevie says, just because. Bobby follows up and says, but why? Stevie responds, just cause. WCW Creative in a nutshell. So over the past 16 years, Nate, I'd forgotten how truly awful David Flair was. This guy was clearly in the ring way too early. Anytime he was in the ring, he was just let in, no grace on his feet, had to be walked through like every single spot. And Nate, I'm, I'm curious. Uh, this was probably the first David Flair match you've watched in a while, and you got to see three of them on this show. With your mind refreshed, who was better? David Flair
0: or Garrett Bischoff? Oh, Garrett Bischoff, by far. Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: Because yes, to me, you know, both were, were put in before, in a major spotlight before they were ready, I think. But at least Garrett, like Garrett was athletic. And David Flair, bless his heart, was was not. And, and I think at least just being an athlete and probably doing some karate, kung fu, training with his daddy, Garrett at least had kind of the semblance of, You know, making it look halfway decent. Whereas with David, even the simplest bumps just looked looked terrible. And and, you know, not that I could do any better uh, because I'm no wrestler. But yeah, it 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 was a bad spot for the dude anyway. Because I think just having that name attached, there's so much pressure and and so much expectations that are heaped upon him. And it, it, it was probably unfair to the kid. But yeah, he was he was not very good.
1: This David Flair worked i think this david flair worked better as a character than any iteration of garrett bischoff as a character
0: yeah the, in terms of a character i did like you know psycho david flair uh a, a, as a character just once the bell rung he wasn't anything special whereas it's it's almost the, the inverse with garrett like garrett was creative player number one as a personality but once the bell rung at least he could do some you know some basic moves
1: Midnight tags in for some short power spots before Stevie Ray pulls her out of the ring and just punches her right in the face. This means that Lash LaRue is now alone in the match, a situation we haven't seen in, I don't know, 15 minutes? We just, like, we cut camera angles and suddenly Disco Inferno and the Mama Lukes are in the aisle. Now, as if nine people were not enough for this segment, down runs Booker T to make it an even 10, who starts brawling with his brother Stevie Ray. In the ring, Lash is holding his own, but the Mamelukes come in and lay him out. Now, the ref doesn't call a DQ because he's on the floor checking on Booker T, who's not even in this match. So David Flair and Crowbar are brawling with each other because they're crazy, you see, and that's just what they do. And Bobby declares, it's Nitro. Anything can happen. Tony says... You've never seen anything like this before. Meaning a different Tony Schiavone must have been calling last week's show, and Crowbar then puts David Flair on top of Lash LaRue for the victory. So yes, the two men who won last week both passed out. Were now both passed out due to outside interference, and Crowbar was just placing David Flair on top of Lash, gets the three. So there you go. Uh, if I have to say positive about this, Nate. Um, because the booking of it sort of speaks for itself. I will say I was impressed that everyone hit their cues. You know, no one, was, no one was jumping over each other. This was a lot to choreograph. and everyone was where they needed to be, uh, when they needed to be there.
0: Oh, for me, I think the, the positives I can say are, and this might be a recurring theme, uh, just uh, that feeling of seeing an old friend and realizing how much I've missed them without even knowing. And uh, that, that's how I felt when I saw Lash LaRue. <laughs> he, he was another guy I was in the tank for. Like I was like, oh man, Lasharou could have been a star.
1: Like <laughs> I wouldn't have gone that far, but I liked the guy.
0: <laughs> like, I, I like Lasharou, and I know this might be a little controversial because uh, it's an acquired taste. But I think Stevie Ray always makes me laugh on commentary. Like there's just something about like he he's so not trying to be a polished announcer that it it kind of works for him.
1: Stevie Ray is by far the worst Huffman brother commentator. And that says a lot when you compare.
0: <laughs>
1: we then go backstage where Lex Luger is in Sting get up and face paint, walking through the back with Miss Elizabeth. We go back outside and the limo is still waiting. Backstage, Lash LaRue asks Disco why he interfered. Disco explains that he's in trouble with these guys. The Mamelukes then attack Lash from behind as Disco protests. In the ring, Lex and Elizabeth enter to Sting's music while the announcers remind us of the injuries the real Sting sustained at Starcade from Lex. Lex, in character as Sting, says he needs to redeem himself and calls out his useless opponent tonight. However, out comes Tank Abbott in the Bret Hart-approved t-shirt tucked into jeans. Lex begs off Tank, but Elizabeth sprays mace in Tank's eyes. A bell rings for some reason as Lex leaves. Jerry Flynn then runs down to the ring and attacks the blinded Tank Abbott. Apparently they'll face each other in some match called The Block or whatever. It's sold out, whatever that means. Luger and Elizabeth then encounter a black crow on the stage. Each sentence that I just said could have been its own segment. Just... Lex Luger coming out, dressed as Sting, could have done five minutes on just that to build up heat for their return. Him calling out, you know, Tank Abbott, that could have been a thing. Elizabeth putting Mason, is, that could have been a thing. Jerry Flynn coming, that could and then, It's just so funny because, like, each segment on this show is like a Russian nesting doll.
0: This might have been the part of the show, Brian, where my, uh, my uh, enthusiasm took a turn for the worse. <laughs> Once once uh once I was made aware of the fact that we wouldn't be getting any Sting on this episode, I was uh, a little disappointed because I had forgotten uh where Sting was around this time in 2000. And I, I felt for sure, it's the first show of the year. Sting's going to come out and do something really cool. And, oh yeah, by the way, Sting's, uh, Sting's hurt. And in, in his place, you get Lex Luger. But not the good Lex Luger from like 1988, 1989. You get 2000, phoning it in, just cashing a check Lex Luger. I was like, damn.
1: No, once as soon as he started getting that like very slow mo sort of like inspirational speaker music, I was done. I prefer his his real shit, you know, bing, bing 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 bing. That like once he joined NWO, it's downhill. That that was the end of Lex
0: Luger for me. So back when he, when he started wearing FUBU with Kevin Nash,
1: <laughs> that's what FUBU stands for, right? For you by us, right? <laughs> um. So in the ring, Rob Gardner, who was some like high up WCW, had you ever seen this guy before?
0: I had never heard or seen this guy. I mean, I probably saw it when I first watched the episode back in the day, but I had no recollection of it. And it it was something that they did all the time, because I think there was a couple Nitros, and they might have been in 99, where yeah. Harvey Schiller was a, a part of the show for some damn reason all the time. They
1: bring Harvey Schiller sometimes, yeah. Um, so he comes out, um, and, and he says that two weeks ago, quote, the powers that be swerved the world, and reformed the NWO. <laughs> so there you have it. Some, some executive we've never seen before with no public speaking is just summarizing storylines and shoot terms for us. Rob then says there's only one man with the ability to save WCW at this moment.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, the man who made hardcore fashionable the day he set foot inside a wrestling ring and the new commissioner of world championship wrestling Terry Funk. Oh no. What? Terry Funk?
1: We pan the crowd as fans look collectively confused as the announcers dismiss it as them simply being stunned. Now, you see, Nate, this was supposed to be Ric Flair. (laughs) But he took one look at the creative for the show and said, You're not booking me like that in South Carolina and refused to do the show. So this was supposed to be Ric Flair. And if you look at the creative for this show, it makes perfect sense. If you see the way that it's written and what comes next, that this should have been Ric Flair, but he refused to do it based on the creative. Uh, Out comes Terry Funk, and Funk explains that he loves real pro wrestling, and that's why he took the job. He calls out the NWO and says they're a bunch of fat hogs following behind the slop wagon of easy money being thrown out by Ed Ferrara and Vince Russo. Uh, He also said it was Ed Ferrara rather than uh, uh, Ed Ferrara, but whatever. Uh, Funk says he needs an enforcer and brings out Art Anderson, who obviously gets a much bigger pop than Terry Funk. The crowd chants, we want flair, as Arn cuts a damn good promo saying that he fought with blood and sweat while Ferraro and Russo use a pencil and an eraser. Anderson says that guys like Russo and Ferraro, who have never been seen on TV, by the way, send people like Nash and Hart to do their bidding, telling you that the main heels are just setup guys for the writers in the back. Arn says that if you want people like him out of the business, you've got to drag them out by the balls of their feet. Out come the NWO, and Hart says that Funk is over the hill and offers him an easy way out by joining the NWO. Funk says that he's got all the time in the world, and he'll make sure that Hart loses it sold out by adding a few stipulations. Funk declares that Hart will lose the belt if the NWO interferes and that Arn Anderson will be the guest referee for the match. Funk then says that Sid will face Jeff Jarrett in a power bomb match tonight for the U.S. title because I guess those vertebrae are less compressed than they were 30 minutes ago. Funk also guarantees that Nash and Steiner won't win the tag titles tonight. Nash comes back by saying that he thought Funk was dead. Rather than coming to the ring to beat the two of them up though he says that Nash and the NWO are going to chase down Arn's godson Ric Flair in the back. Yeah, a lot of that would have made sense had this actually been Rick Flair. Instead, we kind of get the uh, the 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 wet fart of Terry Funk coming out and this crowd not really caring whatsoever.
0: Yeah, because that was my big thing watching this. It was like, you know, I, God bless Terry Funk. Like, I, I love me some Terry Funk. But the pairing with him and Arn didn't make sense to me at all. So now, you know, now that you say it was supposed to be Flair, that, that makes a lot more sense. But here's the other thing, man. If we're doing all this insider promo work and, and we're using all this shoot terminology, and they they run things with the pencil and the pen. What good is the commissioner? Yeah. What, what, what purpose do you serve? Like, I think the NWO actually made the most salient point. If we're not following the rules now, why would we follow the rules just because you're here?
1: If we go back to even to, to Rob Gardner's thing, is he saying, we have these two guys that are writing storylines that are causing the nwo to get over too much so we're going to bring in a guy who's not going to pay attention to the script on the show and book matches that are then not g- what what exactly is terry funk doing right it, like, it like did, when,
0: did when the does powers that be right in terry funk
1: right and when does it stop being like when does it start being real so so the powers that be reformed the NWO. And so they wrote this. But then at what time do the matches that they're being booked into start being... I mean, I guess at the time it made sense. And I guess kind of what I can say... What, what's weird is the fact they're bringing up Russo and Ferrara and saying writers and pens and, 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 and pencils and erasers. Because if they're just saying the powers that be were sort of like pulling the strings backstage, this would make sense. And I guess... I'm kind of putting my 13-year-old brain onto here as I was when I was watching this uh, for the first time and sort of like making it make sense in my head that I just thought these were people pulling the strings. But
0: that's not really what they're saying here, is it? Once you introduce the idea of, you know, somebody's using the power of the pen and they're writing and they're they're creating these situations, then you – throw everything into question because yeah much like you when I was first watching this back in the day I just felt you know powers to be like like the man like if you watch the old black exploitation movie the man is the bad guy and, and you really don't have to get into the details of what the man is or who what what he does you know he's he's uh he's just the man he's got money he's got power and he's screwing things up for the hero and and so that's how I took the powers to be when I was younger. But going back and watching this now, and and seeing you know Arn talk about the pen in this promo, it it's like it, it, it's almost like those old Bugs Bunny episodes where the artist would get involved with the actual show. Yeah, and you've got you know the eraser coming in and making Daffy Duck look crazy and, and Daffy Duck's arguing with the guy that's creating the cartoon, it works there because it's a Looney Tune. It doesn't work in this setting where we're supposed to be suspending our disbelief, Brian, and believing that this is actually a conflict happening on the screen.
1: I, I guess the only thing I can kind of say in its defense is I, I'm going to try to judge it on its own standards. And, and this is something that it's kind of, you got to ask yourself when you ...decide to review Vince Russo stuff as we will be doing here for a, for a while. Do we judge it based on being a successful wrestling show or do we judge it on what he was trying to achieve? Because it's very obvious that he's trying to be a TV writer making a TV show and he clearly doesn't care about what draws money or works in front of a live crowd or makes you want to spend money on a pay-per-view... His problem is that he's trying to do too much at once. But I think a lot of the things that we sort of like the way that we judge this show, we maybe wouldn't judge it so harshly if we were judging it outside of the typical pro wrestling uh, framework, if that makes sense.
0: Well, and then you, you know, you say uh, you know too too much too soon. I think that's that's a, an excellent point because uh, you know one of the biggest things last year was the saga of the Hardys and the whole deletion epic and if you remember it started out slow we didn't we didn't get total non-stop deletion on the first night because if that's what we were introduced to i think a lot of people would just be like what the hell is going on i think people still don't like that but at least now we kind of accept what we've been given but it took time to build up those steps and acclimate the audience to this new world this new type of storytelling but with vince russo it's just kind of like balls to the wall sometimes literally uh, straight off the bat. So,
1: uh, backstage, Arn and Terry, uh, send security to try to track down David Flair. At this point, we then go back to the ring for our next, uh, match, which is Buff Bagwell, uh, entering first, accompanied to the ring by his airbrushed top hat. And out next is his random lottery partner, the late Chris Champagne Canyon, who was playing a delusional movie star gimmick coming off his stunt work and Ready to Rumble. Canyon says he's been to Hollywood and this town ain't Hollywood. Kristen turns to Buff and acknowledges that Buff has also made movies, but that his movies suck. Which is an intriguing statement, considering what we would learned about both of these men in the coming years. However, as a peace offering, Chris gives Buff a, battle, uh, a bottle of champagne. Buff comes back by saying that...
0: Number one, Greenville is Hollywood! <laughs> Boys, he wants lost-
1: Buff says he doesn't like champagne and Greenville doesn't like champagne, breaking the bottle over Chris's head moments before their their quarterfinal match in a title tournament. This wasn't even the finals. Best case scenario, he has three more matches with this guy. So Norman Smiley then enters in a mascot outfit uh, for what is now effectively a handicap match. Nate, did you also know at this time period that Norman Smiley was the WCW hardcore champion?
0: Oh, good old screaming Norman.
1: Yep. You might not know it because he didn't come out with the title and he did not identify him as such.
0: Hey, those those are minor details, man. Minor details. Minor
1: details. Now, I just said this might be a handicap match, but who knows? Maybe not, as Norman's partner is Asia, the China ripoff. So Buff might actually be at the advantage here. Uh, long story short, Nate, this was not good. Uh, at all. Norman Smiley, the most competent worker in here, was being forced to work in a mascot's outfit. This was a period of time where he would always come out with some sort of protection because uh, he was afraid of being hurt. Uh, The finish comes when Norman Smiley takes his mascot head and tries to hit buff with it, but instead he ducks and he hits Asia with it and said, I have no idea how a pretty much a large pillow would knock out Asia, but it did. Uh, If you're a fan of shoulder tackles, this is the match for you. This then causes uh, Norman Smiley to take one of said shoulder tackles, gets up, Gets hit with the buff blockbuster and is pinned by Buff Bagwell. So Buff Bagwell by himself advances uh, to the next round. This brings out Saturn, Malenko, and Shane Douglas to attack Asia, but Hacksaw Jim Duggan runs down and saves her. The Revolution then starts to beat up Duggan, but then out come the filthy animals to make the save. So what's the big takeaway from this uh, segment? What did you need to know moving forward in the show? Well, you needed to know that Buff Bagwell won. But that's not how the segment ended. The segment ended with uh uh hacksaw Jim Duggan and then the, the filthy animals and, and what what whatever. Uh Nate, this, this was this was just a goddamn mess. This was when the formula that just a second ago I was like, it's fun, it keeps the energy up. It's now officially it's already old. We're we're like halfway through the first episode. It's all it's old at this point.
0: Yeah, and and my saving grace for this segment again was being reintroduced to old friends and maybe the biggest one in this segment was uh Chris Canyon, who is somebody that I, I was always a fan of. Like I I thought he his in ring work was always solid. And this character, even though it you know, it didn't catapult him to start him, I actually liked the Champagne Canyon character.
1: I did too, and it was uh yeah, it was clearly a gimmick that couldn't really go anywhere. That was again another problem with the Russo era was that everything was so predicated on humor that you really couldn't take any of it seriously if you look at the attitude era there was plenty of humor and a lot of people got over with it but the main event and the people that were supposed to get behind were serious and had a serious edge i mean even guys like uh like a like a val could get serious and could be taken seriously in 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 a match in a uh competitive capacity but people like champagne canyon no couldn't get there Uh,
0: another thing brian that uh, I, i will give points to uh brother Russo on for, um, and this probably was unintentional. Like, I, I don't think that, uh, Vince Russo is some champion of women women. Uh, but this is the second match on the show where we've seen a, uh, female competitor mix it up with the guys.
1: Yeah, but I don't, I don't know. know how,
0: that's gotta count for something, right? That's That's progress sure
1: this wasn't lucha underground though this is just...
0: <laughs> listen bro i'm gonna do something very progressive for the ladies i'm gonna put him in there with the guys sure one of them is gonna get decked by stevie ray but it's entertainment bro
1: so uh we go to the back where r and terry and the nwo are looking for david flair In the arena, the NWO music is heard for what has to be the seventh time so far. And down come Nash and Steiner for a match against the Harris Brothers. Now, rather than get on the apron, Steiner decides to just sit down on commentary because he was actually still injured at this point. Nash grabs a bat, distracting the referee as the varsity club comes down and lays out the Harris Brothers with chairs. Steiner then comes in to pin one of the Harris Brothers for an easy one, two, three. Tony then says, okay, let's go to the back once again. In the back, Daphne taunts Arn and Terry uh, about David's whereabouts. She leaves the room, but then is then snatched by Jeff Jarrett. Back out in the arena, Buff Bagwell comes down for his next match. It's probably, conservatively, Nate, how long do you think it had been? I know we just blazed through some of that stuff, but it all happened very quickly. How long do you think it had been since Buff Bagwell had been out in this arena?
0: <laughs> That's a, like... Not, no more than like no more than 10 minutes.
1: No more than 10 minutes. I say that because he came out and got his full pyro again. <laughs> this company. <laughs> this company and money. Canyon then attempts to sneak up from behind him, but he is attacked by Bam Bam Bigelow out of nowhere, who throws him off the stage and through a table. Pretty big deal. No time to dwell on it, though, uh, as David and Crowbar then make their way out. However, that wasn't enough, as before the match starts, out comes Vampyro, Vampiro uh, argues with. Uh, I am using the Ed Ferrara uh, pronunciation there. Uh, Vampiro argues. Yeah, uh,
0: I, I thought I thought you were just tying it tying it back to Buffs uh, Pyro. I thought you were going for some type of meta humor there.
1: I was not. I, w- I was uh, Ferrara was creeping into my pronunciation, but Vampiro argues with Bagwell, and then uh, and then it appears that Vampiro will now be Bagwell's partner due to his issues last week with Crowbar and Flair. I call shenanigans on this. I didn't realize you could just switch tag partners like this halfway through a tournament.
0: Hey, it's Nitro. Anything can happen, Brian.
1: <laughs> Vampiro uh, hits a spin kick on Crowbar and then hits a top rope spin wheel kick uh, to uh, to Crowbar. A lot of spin kicks uh, between uh, these two gentlemen here. Arn and Funk then come down to talk to David, and the camera stays on flair as Vampiro and uh, Crowbar are just absolutely wasting their time actually having a match in the background. Vampiro then comes out to argue with Arn, but Funk punches him. Funk then rolls Vampiro back in the ring. I don't know who I'm supposed to be cheering for here. Back in the ring, Buff then hits a buff blockbuster on Vampiro for no reason and walks out. Bobby says, there's so much going on, you can't keep up. David crawls in the ring and covers Vampiro for the pin. So the finals will be Steiner and Nash versus Crowbar and Flair. And yet, here we are. To the finals, no one has gotten an actual clean victory. I don't think we've seen one person actually hit an offensive maneuver one on one and pin the person. I think the cleanest victory in this whole tournament might have been Rick Steiner, who got immediately disqualified. Uh,
0: this was this this was something. Again, trying to trying to find some positives uh, on this whole thing, Brian. Uh I guess I guess I'll give a shout out to Crowbar, who was uh severely carrying the load for that Crowbar flare tank. He sure was. <laughs> he was He was doing his damnedest to, to get that act
1: over. So the NWO music hits once again. Brett and, uh, Jared. I couldn't even remember their names because these guys don't make any sense together. Then bring, out, then bring out Daphne and challenge David to come find them as they head to the back. Backstage, David and Crowbar are searching for Daphne. We then come to match number eight on a less than two-hour uh, show. Uh... It is a powerbomb match. Sid Vicious, where it's, I know this is supposed to be like a neck brace or a collar. It's not. It's like one of those neck pillows that like old people wear. <laughs> and it's clearly, it's not even big enough to like fit around his neck. And it's kind of getting like the Velcro is getting tangled up in his like his hair on the back. So he comes out with his neck brace on. And uh, then the NWO plays for 10th time. Probably like 10th time we've heard the MWO music in this show. And US champ Jeff Jarrett comes out to defend his belt. Now, presumably, you can only win this match by powerbombing your opponent, but it's never actually explained. Uh, after some lackluster offensive and some kicks, Sid's neck pillow is just barely hanging on. Sid chokeslam Jarrett's and signals for a powerbomb. Jarrett takes, takes out the ref, and Sid powerbombs Jarrett, but the ref, wouldn't you know it, is knocked down, can't see it. Pretty much the way every single powerbomb match actually goes. Sid gets the ref up, but Bret Hart then comes in and attacks him with a baseball bat. So this powerbomb match ends with a DQ. Why it had to be a powerbomb match? Why you couldn't just call it a regular match that could end with a DQ? No idea. Yet more spray paint on Sid. Paramedics didn't come down and of course the NWO attacks him so I, I guess the real grudge match they're building up to here is like a four-on-four a four four tag match between the NWO and some paramedics. This was the only non-tag title tournament match on the entire show uh i guess because uh you really needed some rest for uh for, for steiner and nash for the main event
0: and i think this is part of the, the part of the show brian where i started questioning the philosophy of uh the powers that be uh not the fictionalized powers that be but the actual powers that be behind the scenes
1: oh they were definitely and- making themselves heels based on if i was supposed to hate the person who wrote this show they're getting themselves over.
0: <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was like, man, they really are. Like, this this is very much like uh, modern-day WWE. There's no damn babyfaces. Like, there's nobody of uh, redeeming value to cheer for on this program. Like, everybody feels so ambiguous. Uh, and and the one guy that, that would have me cheering uh, is injured, and that's the stinger.
1: Booker T was the most straight-up babyface on this show.
0: Yeah, yeah, you're you're right, you're right, but the uh, yeah, DDP
1: DDP just beat up two, uh, you know, just two struggling meth heads. Uh,
0: <laughs> uh, Sid Vicious, who like I, I'm, I I'm guess not, a Sid Sid F- was,
1: yeah, Sid was supposed to be a big baby face at this
0: time. Like he's, I mean, if you're just going by the show, he's supposed to, he's the top face on the show, just by what we've been shown. And I like I like Sid Vicious, but no, he's not. He's not your top baby face, or he shouldn't be your top babyface. face. not in the year 2000, anyway. Like, this was a show that was just full of unlikable people.
1: Yeah, like there was, and there was also no reason for Sid to even be on this show. Uh, so now it is uh, main event time for another... In- why did the NWO keep going backstage? They should have just sat at ringside the entire time.
0: Wh- why? Why do we have to keep getting these entrances?
1: Flair and Crowbar run out, no longer concerned with finding Daphne, apparently... Flair eats a big boot, Uh, Crowbar gets sent over the top rope, Steiner again, he's just straight to the commentary table for him, there's no ref but the bell rings, and I guess the match is underway without a referee, Uh, Nash is just, he's doing all comedy, it's pretty clear that he's upset that he has to do something even resembling a main event, that he has to work for more than 90 seconds, does a Stooges eye poke on Crowbar and a low blow. Then out comes Arne Anderson in a ref shirt with Terry Funk and security by his side. Steiner then gets angry at Tanay for calling a Frankensteiner a Hurricane Rana, So move over, John Pollock. Tanay got the talking to first. Nash powerbombs Crowbar. So I guess Nash might be U.S. champion now. Nash goes to powerbomb Flair, but Arn hits Nash with a crowbar. Baby faces galore here. Arndon pulls David on top of Nash, making this the third match in this tournament, the, the, the third pinfall in this tournament that he has gotten unaware, and gets the pin. David and Crowbar are now the tag team champions. Jared and Hart then bring out Daphne and just sort of hand her back to Flair. I guess they, you know, that, that's, that's their plans done. So Crowbar and Daphne and David Flair run to the back. Because he's crazy, before he leaves, David Flair hits Arn Anderson with the crowbar. He's such a kooky person. Steiner then attacks Funk in the aisle and tosses him to the ring. Bobby says, What a year
0: we got, guys!
1: Gonna get nothing but better. In the aisle, Hart and Jarrett are attacking Arn and drag him to the back. This crowd, seeing their third NWO beatdown of the night, are just sitting on their hands. Nash jackknives Funk in the ring. In the back, Arn is thrown into the trunk of a car and the NWO drive away as we fade to black.
0: This was, uh, mm. I was gonna say, Brian, that maybe if the team that uh, was winning in the end was a worthy team, that this would have been worth it. But even then, I don't like. You could have had the greatest tag team in history. Like this could have been, you know, the, the Midnight Express, the Rock and Roll Express, the, the Road Warriors, Harlem Heat, whatever great tag team you want to throw in there. The Heart Foundation. Having them win in this fashion still would have been convoluted and. Ultimately detrimental to me buying into them as a great team.
1: Well, and the element of it being David Flair kind of makes sense had Ric Flair actually been there. But they, Crowbar and David Flair certainly weren't the worst tag teams. Uh, Weren't the worst tag team in this tournament.
0: And none none of these teams were over, it seemed, either.
1: Well, because it was all uh, makeshift teams. Like, that was the whole thing. It's like there were a couple actual existing teams. Like, uh, you had the Harris brothers in there uh you had nash and steiner that was it right like i can't think of it because all the other ones were like oh. uh pg-13 you can't forget them. oh good point pg-13 should have taken this
0: <laughs> hey you joke with I, I given the circumstances that you know you rick flair's not there i'd say you'd probably get the same response if, if pg-13 <laughs> was in that main event so yeah,
1: so this episode ends with Arne Anderson presumably being uh, kidnapped. Uh, the reason why Rick Flair did not want to do the creative in the show was because he did not want to be beaten down and left laying in Charlotte in, uh, in in South Carolina at the end of the show. So you know you can't. What made it so bad please.
0: was they uh, Tony Schiavone a couple times made reference to what I think and, and a lot of people might think is one of the greatest Nitro moments ever that occurred in this building the year before. Yep when uh, Ric Flair returned uh, and and gave that great promo damn near shooting on Bischoff. Fire me! I'm already fired! Fire me! Uh, and, and Tony kept bringing it up. And one year ago, folks, Ric Flair made his return in this very building, but he's not here tonight.
1: <laughs> something we're going to do each time is, uh, you know, we are being positive here, but we're, we're going to have to really, each episode, we're going to identify a silver lining. Something that we did straight up think was actually decent and good i'm still pondering mine nate but but nate what was your what was your silver lining for this episode (laughs) Uh,
0: my silver lining besides the intro which i still love like just something about that stock industrial music with the logo and the nitro girls dancing around a pit of fire for some reason that just works it screams 2000 uh but i would say my silver lining would be uh the amount of young talent on this show. You know, a lot of times WCW was criticized for relying on the old guys or the WWE cast-offs, and yes, there was some of that on this on this particular episode, but you had some young talent. You know, people like, uh, like Lash LaRue. You had people like David Flair and Crowbar. You know, young guys getting more opportunities. Uh,
1: oh, yeah, no, a lot of people were definitely using their uh, creative clauses at this point to not
0: show up. Chris Chris Canyon getting a little bit of a shine on this show before he got put through a table. You know, we we saw some of the younger guys getting getting uh, some love. Uh, I don't think they were put in the best positions or or even the best uh, gimmicks, but that that would be my positive for this week. That uh, you know, it's not the same old same old.
1: I'm trying to think of like who had one segment that ended up well for them because every segment either ended with. Someone else coming out and stealing the attention, or them being beaten up from behind. Uh, like even like Buff Bagwell single handedly winning a match by himself was uh, immediately undercut. Who, honestly, let me think this through. Other than the NWO, I think the I think the babyface who came out on top, the best was maybe Jerry Flynn.
0: <laughs> oh, Jerry Flynn.
1: Jerry Flynn's up there. Buff Bagwell. I'll say Buff. Uh, no, uh, Bam Bam Bigelow. His little beatdown wasn't so bad. Um, I will. I will say a silver lining that I liked was DDP. Clearly not scripted, but felt real in his backstage interview. I, I kind of liked that he threw that line in there. Like that they had a terrible. Ta- they had a terrible uh, travel department, and like, why did you book me to be here tonight?
0: <laughs> it um, was probably his real thoughts you, you flew me here for this one damn segment
1: And uh Fuck it, my silver lining is Rob Gardner I thought that he uh, <laughs> He brought a real believability And that's what that needed to be
0: I gotta say, that was actually something That always, even back then you know, Felt a little bit more real On WCW than it did On WWF programming The The corporate Authority, because we, there was a structure with Turner and later with Time Warner and AOL that you're like, okay, yeah, these guys probably do have to answer to somebody
1: uh but but yeah this is uh this is the end of this, and I guess just uh checking in on our experiment Nate how's uh how's your head feeling? What's your thoughts or fears as we kind of go down this road?
0: I wasn't too much of a fan of this episode, but I think that a lot of that can be excused just by the fact that we had to get this tournament out of the way. And I'm, I'm like I'm not the biggest fan of, of, of tournaments in general, uh, particularly when you do them like in, in or do the bulk of them in one night. Uh, so that that didn't uh, really set my world on fire. Uh, but much like the country figured out uh, around this time back in 2000, you know, before that, everybody thought that the world was going to end or society was going to collapse and and things would never be the same again. Uh, and then you know, come January. Uh, We were like, okay, we're still here. It's going to be okay. That's how I'm feeling right now, Brian. Like this episode wasn't the greatest uh, introduction to Nitro in 2000, but I have hope. I'm still optimistic. uh, You know, that man called Sting, he's going to get healthy. He's going to come back. And uh, I think we're going to have some good episodes down the road.
1: Is that what you think happened? Everyone was so afraid of the Y2K bug, they just didn't bother writing writing this episode? (laughs)
0: <laughs> and they're like oh, like, oh, just
1: do the rest of the tournament and just put NWO in every single segment. You
0: joke, but that, that, look, that, that was a real thing. Like I remember people, like the attendance for uh, church services and 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 uh, temple and synagogues, like they rose because people were legitimately scared about Y2K, and then it turned out it was all just a uh, a big promotion for Chris Jericho. I
1: remember, yeah. <laughs> of course, we all remember the ball dropped, and then Chris Jericho came out. Uh, yeah, I mean, for me, this episode, um, I'm a little wary of, uh, heading down this road. I'm hoping that maybe when, again, the next, next week's episode is not a tag title tournament. We're, we're not going to be getting, um, so much repetition, but at the same time, I feel like that actually gave this episode some structure that future ones won't have. But maybe that also means that because of the because of this tag t- tournament, they had to force a lot of stuff into each segment. Like you had multiple segments where you're trying to hit like so many things at once. Because we have to have David Flair out here four different times. We have to have the NWO out here ten different times. Rather than well, we can actually give the Revolution a segment, and we can give them something with the Filthy Animals, and we can give. And that's why he had all this interference because uh, Russo, for better or for worse, is not very good at giving a storyline a week off. Every storyline has to constantly be aware. So we have the Varsity Club out here interfering with the Harris Brothers twice and things like that. So, uh, so yeah, so far, week one, I feel like my brain is still intact um, as much as it can be with us saying positive things about NWO uh, 2000. Uh, but, yeah, I feel like this was a good first episode, and we're, uh, we survived.
0: Yeah, I- I'm still optimistic. I, I think, you know, uh, despite me not really being blown away by this particular episode, I I still hold out hope uh, that that we'll get some good stuff, you know, because much like the uh, WWE invasion, uh, you know, we, we don't have the heavy hitters. We don't have flair. We don't have sting. We don't have Goldberg. So I I need my heavy hitters on deck before I can truly grade this show.
1: I don't know if it can really hold out. Are you going to be, how upset are you going to be when these guys show up and it's terrible? (laughs)
0: <laughs> I, I I have a feeling, because I do remember some things that happened this year. I, I remember some terrible things involving uh, staying and in Goldberg and, and uh, Flair and people like that. So, I I know it's not all going to be good, but I do think the first episode we get to where, where they show up, I'll, I'll probably be happy at least for, for that one week.
1: I'm also curious, at this time period, did you attend any of these Nitros?
0: No, I, I think, uh... The last thing that I had attended from WCW would have been a World War Three pay per view, and that probably would have been, I want to say either ninety eight or ninety nine. They
1: stopped doing them in ninety eight, so yeah. Yep.
0: Yeah, so yeah, that that was the last live uh, event I'd attended.
1: Well, for me, uh, there is a Nitro later on in this uh, in this run that I'm at, and I'm in the fourth row, and you can see me the entire show. So that's <laughs> something to look forward to, everybody. <laughs> Uh, but in the meantime, what you guys got to look forward to is more of this. Uh, we will be doing this entire year, as we said, just the Nitros, not the Thunders, not the pay-per-views. I could not sit through three hours of this, and I could not sit through uh, the sea listers uh, getting squashed by a sting-painted Lex Luger every single week. Uh, so, Nate, that's what people have to look forward to. And how about you give them some words of wisdom to go out on?
0: All right, Brian. Uh, I think uh, this is a fun first week uh, and your mileage may vary on the fun but uh, we hope you dug it and we'll see you back here uh, next time but I'm going to leave us with the words of the great group TLC Uh, shout out to Chili uh, because she's probably listening much like one of their hit songs this episode was unpretty and you can buy your hair if it won't grow you can fix your nose if they say so you can buy all the makeup that Mac can make But if you can't look inside you and find out who I am, too, you're going to be in a position that makes you feel so damn unpretty.
1: Keep It 2000 is a live audio wrestling production. Executive produced by John Pollock and edited by Brian Mann. Theme song by Chris Urbanovich. For more shows, check out liveaudiorrestling.com or subscribe on iTunes
0: why this company's in the damn shape it's in, because of bullshit like this. this, this.